This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. In trout country, the northern pike is an oft-maligned character accused of high crimes in watersheds where the two overlap. But not all fly anglers harbor this sentiment. There are those who appreciate the pike as a fly rod game fish and a savvy predator that tests an angler's skill, knowledge, and experience. They say 10% of the fishermen catch 90% of the fish. And in terms of pike in western Montana, I believe this adage holds water. My guest today certainly resides in the upper echelon and is widely regarded as the regional authority on pike on the fly and fly time. Neil Cote, welcome to the February Room. Justin, thanks. Thanks for, thanks for uh, letting me be here. 
Yeah, absolutely, man. This is going to be fun. Um, I can't wait to pick your brain. But before we before we da- take a deep dive into all things pike, uh, do you have a fishing story you can share with us, pike oh, or God. otherwise? This year, um, yeah, I actually have a pretty good one. I was uh, a couple weeks ago. I was fishing down at Knox, and I was actually not fishing for pike, fishing for walleyes. And I should have brought a surfboard from where I was. It was three foot, four foot waves, and not a single shred of it was uh, Mother Nature oriented. It was pleasure boats, wakeboard boats. I had one boat that I guarantee it threw a six, seven foot wave at. Wow. It's pretty crazy. Um, the really crazy thing was, though, we were catching fish. So we just kind of stuck with it. The kid that I had with me was kind of complaining on the fact that he's from California and he hasn't seen waves like that since he's been out on the ocean a few years ago. <laughs> so, Man, yeah, this year it's been crazy it's been busy absolutely. I did fish the water that you and I fish up at Celia a couple weeks ago. And? I caught, a, I caught a northern pike with a brand new Thomas Cyclone in the corner of its mouth. So I mean, like just, it had just been bitten off. I mean, that, that lure was, I think it still had the price tag on it. <laughs> I mean, it was brand new and that bike had zero problems smoking a flyer after. Yeah, that's, I've had a couple of days like that this year where it's just been crazy with pleasure boaters, man. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been kind of the year to, to hit it early and, uh, and pick those times yeah. when, when, uh, when the, the, you know, the wave, wave runner and, and jet ski and, and you know mountain dew decal boats <laughs> i don't yeah, know where all these people are coming from what were we calling it flow to patch that's what it was there it was you flow go to patch and now it's now you go on the lakes there's an also it's a terrestrial uh, uh wakeboard hatch but anyway yeah it's pretty crazy so it makes it hard to fish in that stuff in my yeah, little yeah, skiff i think you're you, yeah exactly the reason why i caught that fish though believe it or not was i actually went to take my boat out and there was so many people putting in that I could not, like at the big larch at the boat launch there, I could, it took me, I had to wait an hour and 45 minutes just to be able to get my boat onto the dock, drive up, then wait in line for probably 15 minutes, 20 minutes to get my, just to put my trailer in the water, put the boat on the trailer and get out of there. So, so it's pretty figure, crazy. Well, I might as well just go. Well, that was what we did. Kinda, yeah, we kind of were like, okay, you know, we'll just go out here. And, and of course, I, you know, I, I'm cheating because I'm using a crest liner with the spot lock Minn Kota, so I can just go out there and go, okay, I'll spot lock here and fan cast this. And went to one spot, caught two fish, and I'm like, oh, that's not too bad. Moved over about 75, 80 feet, re-spot locked it again, caught three more, and then I had lost one fish that was a good-sized fish, probably in the 14-inch range, surprisingly. Yeah, I was I was not expecting one of that caliber, you know, 100 yards from the boat launch, right? But I have caught multiple large fish, within sight of where everybody puts in. So I, I, have, I, have ha- I have a habit of fishing water that people don't fish. It's a good and, habit. And that's, that's you know, there's a big flat there, and I was fishing, and there was another guy that I had talked to that was there. And he was like, you know, he goes, yeah, we, we would fish the inside of that. And I said, well, did anybody fish the outside of it? And he looked at me like, why would you do that? And I'm like, well, we got 30 minutes to kill, or at least I thought it was going to be 30 minutes, not the hour and 45 minutes, but we fished the outside. I think we ended up getting... Between the two of us, we got 15 or 18 fish. So, dang, wasn't too bad. No, I wouldn't say that was bad at all, man. That's uh, that's the key to to any fishing, whether it's pike or otherwise. Is just to, like you said, uh, hit the spots that everybody else kind of overlooks and misses. Well, and everyone has a misconception. Um, well, they have multiple misconceptions. People think that pike are you know 100 percent of warm water fish, 
and I believe they are until they hit that about probably 30, 32 inch size. From 32 to about 36, those fish all of a sudden are more like trout. Their water temp preferences are more like trout. You know, they don't like 70s, they like 60s and 50s. Um, trout do the same thing. You know, the bigger trout get, you know, they don't, you don't see trout, you know, a lot of times, like, you know, all, all of their lives, once they break that, you know, that mythical 24, 25 inch mark, you know, coming up and sipping little tiny, you know, dry flies all their lives. They start to find the niches that they can find food sources that are, you know, considerably easier to catch, number one. And then number two, they get more caloric intake from them. So they purposely will target that stuff. Once those pike get to be 40 inches, they are no longer a warm water fish, except when they want to spawn in the spring. The rest of the time, I mean, I so rarely see those large, large fish super shallow after probably the 15th, 20th of June around here. And it's kind of, it runs, like I go to Coeur d'Alene quite a bit and fish Lake Coeur d'Alene and a couple of lakes over there. I fish the Pindere because um, it's a few fish in that system. Uh, Flathead River, same thing. It's kind of that, you know, once that water temp hits mid 60s, those fish are no longer on those shallow, shallow spots. And, you know, like this year, it was great. We had, a, we had a pretty wet spring, which saved us. Um, but that held fish on those flats up until, you know, probably almost the end of June this year, almost in July. But that was the exception to the rule. But, yeah, those bigger fish are, you know, their, their temperature preferences go way down. That You catch them in places that you, you know, like I said, that you'd actually, you know, when you fish the rivers around here, like a lot of the stuff that you fish for trout probably harbor one or two big, you know, big pike in some of those systems. In some of those places and people just fish right over the top of them say oh no we're not back in the corner in the frog water you right know, so they go right by it um a lot of the fish that i've caught out of the bitter at the clark fork have been in places especially you know that were out on current scenes where you'd be fishing for trout not where you'd be way back up in the shallows fishing for people up in that up way back in <laughs> i'm getting ahead of myself way back in in that super shallow water mm-hmm. um so i think a lot of guys kind of you know row right over fish to get to where they think they need to be as opposed to fishing the water, you know, fishing their way in and fishing their way back out. So that's one of those things that, you know, you mentioned it earlier. I mean, that was one of the things, you know, if you're fishing water that people aren't fishing, you'll catch more fish that way. So Sure. And what, and kind of what is that temperature range you think that those bigger fish I think, head into well, during the heat of the summer? I would say like high 50s to mid 60s, right? There's like a 10, there's a 10 degree temperature range in there that those fish are the most active. Um, after that, those fish will still remain active, but they'll search out locations that they can find that water temp, right? So they will drop off on deeper weed beds. Like, we, you know, we fish up in the lake quite a bit, like Celia and salmon. And I'll see those bigger fish drop off, you know, weed edges. So they're not in that 10, 12 feet of water. Now they're in 15, 18 feet of water. Up to, you know, 25, 30, and even 40 feet of water. And the other thing that I have seen a lot is that they will orient like a weed bed where if you go up and you see the weed bed and you're okay i just need to fish the edge of this weed bed that fish could be 30 40 50 60 feet out off of that weed bed like even with the tops of the weeds mm-hmm. but suspended out away from that oh, okay so that's and an ambush spot getting yeah some cool so water yeah so everyone has this thought process like you go in fish the weed bed oh there's no pike on the edge there's no pike in the weed bed let's move to the next one sometimes those fish will set up you know 20 30 40 50 feet away from that edge Mm. And it'll be about the depth. I mean, the, the way that I, the way that I find them a lot is, I'll go up and either use my electronics because I, you know, 
I'm a fishing nut, so I got everything on the boat, right? Sure. So I'm using my side finder, um, looking out, you know, I say, okay, there's a weed bed, there's a few fish there, and I'll kind of, every once in a while, glance, you know, put my side finder on and glance out to see if I can mark a fish. And more often than not, you'll pick up one or two of those fish that have just moved off that edge. And with those lakes thereafter, you know, they've got kokanee in those systems, they've got peamouth, they've got squawfish, they've got a whole bunch of different open water kind of species. So instead of those fish targeting, you know, up in the shallow water, targeting perch and whatever comes in that weed bed, they'll slide out and kind of play that game where they can suspend up and then look up and anything that swims over the top of them, they come up and get it. Mm. And, you know, you pike fish, you know how hard they are to see. Yeah. You know, they in the are, background. They, yeah. Put them over 40, 50 feet of water where it's super dark. It's really hard to pick up that fish sitting sure. down there, you know, looking up like a white shark at a seal waiting for something to come out and swim over the top of them. And it gives them a huge feeding advantage that way. So those fish that are in those locations are usually 100% on. They're not off. Whereas you'll find fish on those weed edges, they get fished a little bit. You see them, and they won't follow or they'll follow, but they won't eat. Right. And a lot of times, that's where they've been harassed a little bit. They know better. I always joke, we used to always call it the, I want to follow that fly up to the boat and see if it's attached to a boat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, and I've had that happen a lot where I have a big fish that'll follow right up and oh yeah there's a boat attached to that i'm not eating that today and all right go, so. cool and then and you're you're a bit of a hybrid angler too i mean you're I a fly am. fisherman but you'll throw hardware too and and when those fish get into that deeper water are you generally switching over to terminal tackle at yes that and point? no okay yes and no um terminal tackle will allow you to cover that water you know hugely effectively i mean you can you know i i, I do it with bait casters a big swim bait you know like big rod and I can fan cast, I can throw casts, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 feet easily, right, with, with repetition. Um, but there are places, like Coeur d'Alene Lake is one of the ones that I have done incredibly well on super large fish with flies. I have not done great on swim baits there. I've had a lot of big fish follow swim baits there. But I think it's because I think they see them more, mm-hmm. more, than, more than they do over here. Um, the other thing that's funny is that, you know, you can get locked into a speed and a cadence. I mean, we all do it like fly fishing. You know, you, you get used to like when you're stripping streamers for trout, you're like strip, strip, pause, strip, pause. You kind of get right. it. You do two, then one, then two, then one. You kind of keep doing the same thing, right? I have found with those fish, for some reason, they do want a big, slow-moving bait, so a bigger fly. Um, and it's got to be like, where, you know, you can strip it and then suspend it where it'll just stop. And I've had a lot of my strikes um, on those larger fish work. I've literally like stripped two or three times, waited, go to strip again, and I don't feel a fly. And the bad thing is I don't know how long it's been since that fish has probably come up, inhaled the fly, swam two, three, four, five fish lengths towards me, and I don't even realize that the fish has already eaten it. It's already like come up, taken, and repositioned to, to try and take something else, right? I don't even know if the fish has taken it, so it surprises you a lot right mm-hmm. um that fishery is incredibly weird in the aspect that there are some very large fish in that system that don't abide by what i would consider pike rules right <laughs> yeah. they do stuff i mean i I've, i fished up there in that place where i'm fishing in two feet of water and every huge pike is in two feet of water i'll go there a week later and i won't find a huge pike anywhere inside of 12 15 feet of water i don't know what it is with that place i don't know if it's a water temp deal i don't know if it's a wind deal those fish just do weird stuff but the other place is very similar to the north end of flathead lake very similar 
Mm, gotcha. Those I've, fish are in places that, I mean, you can go, I mean, if you want to fish it with 10,000 casts in Montana, I've got the place for you. However, if you do get one to eat, it's probably going to be giant. Okay. Well, I'm so, glad to hear you say that because I've been playing up there a little bit and I have not cracked the code whatsoever, yeah. but I wanted to ask you about this because do you know, are there tiger muskies up there? No. Okay. Tiger, the only tiger muskies in Montana are placed by fish, wildlife, and parks. Um, I've had a few guys. I had one gentleman that was very adamant about the fact that he was catching tiger muskies and he was sending me pictures. This is two, three years ago. They were all pike. Most of them were juvenile pike that he was catching, right? And there's, you know, there's usually anywhere from two to about five different color ranges of pike that I have seen. He was catching a lot of them that had the, they didn't have the spots per se. They do. They're still there when you look close, but it did have like tiger stripe markings, right? And that was kind of one of those deals where, you know, tiger muskies are incredibly different fish. They like warmer water. They, they, they pull more of the, the musky characteristics as opposed to the northern pike characteristics. Um, easy way to tell is looking at the pores underneath their chin, counting pores. Um, you can also look at their, just their head designs is just slightly different. Muskies have a more duck-billed head. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at it down from the top, or pike have a little bit more tapering. You know, their their jaw structure tapers a little bit more to a point, especially their upper jaw, um, where muskies are just really, I mean, it looks like a duck-bill when you're looking at it from the top down. So. Right, right. So so we were up pike fishing on the north end of Flathead, and we saw this critter come up several times, and it was up on the surface. And it was its head was poking out and of the lake. And doing musky stuff, yeah. And doing and and I'd read that tiger musky will do that, and they don't know why. Um, and I, it, it was baffling. My buddy and I saw this this thing to. like four or five times, and I mean, it looked like a big pike mm -hmm. that was coming up and swimming with its head sticking out of the water for probably twenty or thirty seconds, and then it would disappear, and then it would pop back up somewhere else and do it again, yeah. and do it again. Yeah, I have seen northern pike do that. They do you have muskies. okay. I have seen northern pike do it. I have seen muskies do it as well. They used to say that it was for uh, they uh, they can gulp air, so they'll gulp air in the stomach. Sometimes it's just to expel something, right? They get something that they, that's making them sick, so they're sucking air in to try and get it in and they'll spit it out, and that's what causes them to kind of come up to the top. And they suck in air in their stomach. Um, and then I have seen fish, I saw a fish actually not there, but up in, it was up in uh, Beninsloo, which is further up in the system. Someone had caught the fish and released it. And I don't know, I mean, I'm pretty sure the fish died, the fish that I saw, but it was kind of doing the same thing where it would swim for 20, 30, 40 feet at a time with its head just up breaking the water, you know, and then it would disappear for a little bit and then it would come back up and disappear. So I don't know, I mean, I don't know that fish that you guys saw could have been one of the ones that maybe got, you know, either got released or was going here. I mean, I know muskies do that quite a bit too. Interesting. Yeah. So, I, I had no idea that that was even an ESOC's behavior. Mm -hmm. And and then I, I was reading something about tiger muskies and came across the tidbit that said that, yes, tiger muskies have been known to come up and mm -hmm. swim on the surface. So then I thought, well, gosh, yeah, maybe, but yeah, that would, yeah, that's interesting. I okay. see a lot of that. I see a lot of pike around here, uh, pre-spawn pike that do that. They'll come right up below the surface. They're trying to warm up. And they'll come within, you know, their dorsal fin will almost be sticking out the surface of the water and they'll just be sitting there either cruising really slow or just stationary. Hmm. And they go, oh, there's one. And I have everyone that I bring fish in, like, you know, that time of year, they're like, oh, there's one. Like, don't even, don't even throw at it. Why not? I go, it's off. Yeah. No, you know, not, she's not she's trying to warm up. She's 
you know, negative four on the scale of that she's going to eat something. I mean, you can drag a fly across it, put it on her bill, and she'll just turn and swim away from it. She won't even eat it. That's what's so frustrating oh. about fly fishing sometimes. <laughs> People have this mis- misconception mm-hmm. that they're, they're eating machines, right? <laughs> right. God, I wish they were. Oh, yeah. A couple of thousand fish that I can think of off the top of my head that I wish I could make it mean to be. It's there. They are. How do I describe it? They are one of the most frustrating fish on the planet. I'm everywhere around here. Oh, they're easy. You can go out and catch them. Certain times of the year, they are stupid. You can catch them. I mean, you can have a very low knowledge level and smoke them without even trying right um and then you know two weeks later you won't touch one you'll see them and they're there and they won't touch anything and it's just i don't you know that's more of a spawning thing where they're pre-spawn um that's one of the, that's another tidbit for everybody out there that you know pre-spawn post-spawn fish like in montana i always had everybody say oh yeah they're they're done spawning in june there's fish spawning in the river in March, I mean, we get water temps. I mean, their water temp preference for spawning is from 44 to about 46. Okay. And you know it from taking temperatures in the rivers you've done. I mean, in March, you can see some of these sloughs that have, you know, a three foot, four foot deep flat at the end of them that are dark bottomed. And that water will be 48, 49, almost 50, right? And those fish, that's like, that's why those fish move to those locations to spawn, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I target, I fish, I fish super early in the year because I'm looking for those bigger fish to make that move to, you know, to a pre-spawn location. So they'll move right to the mouth of said slough that we just described. They've had all winter where they haven't eaten a whole bunch. Their metabolism is starting to ratchet up and they're looking for that last couple of, you know, good meals to kind of get everything, to get enough energy to spawn. Because they haven't been harassed, per se, they are incredibly gullible. So they haven't seen, you know, they obviously haven't seen Rapala in three, four months. They haven't seen, you know, because rivers are closed for fish and for smelt those times, they haven't seen a dead bait. They are 100% in a feeding mode at that point, and they will eat pretty much. I mean, it's it's super consistent. I mean, you can go out, if you hit the right water temps, you know, anywhere from 38 to about 41 water temp in that time of year, you're going to catch some huge pike. The other time is the fall time. Um, if you start targeting fish in mid-October through you know, November, even in December, you'll see some of those fish that are going into that that are already starting to load up before they even go on the ice and they're on lakes that are going to freeze. They will load up before that water temp drops way down and forces their metabolism down so they won't as much. Mm. But there's kind of those two big windows, and I, you know, it's, it goes against everything that everybody tells me. You know, everything that I read going through the boat, say, oh, you're going to fish for pike, they're warm water fish, you're fishing shallow weeds. These fish are doing stuff that's entirely different. Right. And I joked about that. You know, I did a lot of research on that. And then when I was, you know, in the process of doing that, muskies, doing a lot of research on muskies. And muskies are kind of, they're a different fish completely. They do stuff. They can function in warm water. Those really big fish, I mean, this is, the, you know, like this time of year is when they start really getting some huge muskies, right? And you don't see the guys that are out there doing that. They're in, they're in water that has both large muskies and large northerns in a lot of situations. And you don't see them hitting big northerns, but you do see them hitting those muskies because they can function in 77, 170 degree water temps. Those bigger pike don't function in those, you know, that, that water temp real well. So they'll drop off in the deeper water. I kind of personally, 
I don't fish for them um, once the water tip hits about seven. Kind of, it's not that I you know can't catch them. It's just that I feel like you know those, especially the larger fish, you're hurting them, right? You're bringing them up. So the same thing with the trout. You know, when you do hoot restrictions, it's the same idea. Those fish, when you hook them, they're fighting. They're burning. You know, they're filling their muscles full of lactic acid, and now you're bringing them from six degree water to seven degree water. You know, it's it's not. It shocks them. And I, you know, you hear people say like they catch a big pike this time of year. And it's like, well, he didn't, you know, she ran a couple of times and then she got up on top and she just kind of yeah. gave up, right? It's not that she's given up. She's basically in shock at this point, you know, because she's in such a warm water temperature, right? So, right. So I kind of purposely will back off this time of year. This year was, this year was the exception. You could fish considerably later. Water temps stayed cool up until probably, what, about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Or normally it's, I usually about the 4th of July is kind of where I start. There's other fish to chase and other things to do at that point. So, mm-hmm. but, but um, kind of got off point there. I apologize. Um, no, not at all. Not at uh, all. Good <laughs> stuff, man. Uh, this is all you're making this easy on me. I had all these questions written down, but you're just rolling, and, uh, <laughs> and this is great. So this is all the this is a uh, very inside intel that uh, the most of us uh, weekend warrior pike anglers don't know and don't understand. Well, like I said, it took me a long time. It, 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 I shouldn't say that. Let me rephrase. About half of that was just accidental. As with all fishing, right? You, you, the, the big fish being out off those flats was kind of a, it was a deal. This was years and years ago. Um, we fished at Salmon Lake when they had a bigger population of fish. And moving the boat, like, oh, we're going to move from this wee bed to that wee bed, and I've got to fly out the back of the boat, six feet back, just dragging, right? Somebody like, just stripped it in, and like, okay, I'll just put it in the water, and I'll run out to this next wee bed. Halfway across, all of a sudden, they kind of looked back, and the damn rod down there just yanked out of my hand, and I found one of those fish that was suspended out of a deal. And this was pre-before I had all the electronics and everything, so I'm like, okay, note to self, mm-hmm. if we're going to fish this weed bed, we probably want to not stop a cast length away from it, but maybe two or three cast lengths away from it. Right. Fan cast our way in and see if there are any fish out, you know, off these edges, and sure enough started picking up an extra fish or two and i noticed uh, my brother noticed that a lot of the guys that fish with we all noticed that the fact that those fish that we would pick up off of those you know 30 40 60 feet away from the weed beds were considerably larger fish that's where they were yeah uh-huh. then the smaller fish that we were picking up off these weed beds mm-hmm. and we kind of you know, we always call it the, you know i don't know you probably heard me say this you can you can run numbers so you can go up to the shallow water you can catch all the small pike you want a lot of fisheries, there's you know usually a lot more small pike than there are big pike. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you fish the weed beds, the lily pads, you know, see the leaks classic for it. You go up those lily pads, and you can you know find those smaller pike and get them with you know frog patterns, top water, smaller streamers, anything looks like a perch, they'll eat it. You know, they're they're pretty aggressive, but you won't see any fish over maybe thirty inches. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and don't get me wrong, they're fun as I'll get out because those little guys are. 100% killing machines. They're up there for a reason. Water temp's high. Their metabolism's through the roof. I mean, their you know, heart's beating like a hummingbird. They're eating everything that moves. There's two reasons why those fish are there. One is obviously because they're eating food, and two, because they know that if they come out off that edge, they're going to get crushed. Another a bigger pike's going to smoke them. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's kind of one of the other things that I always tell people um, with fisheries. I know a lot of people are you know, against pike, right? They eat everything. And I said, that's great, and it's true. When they're, when they're small pike and they're stunted, they most definitely will smoke everything, right? When we go into these systems and we fish them, 
if you kill these larger pike that are, you know, 35, 40, 45 inches, you're taking out the number one limiting factor to a pike population besides human beings. That's a good point. You're taking out these large pike that are specifically targeting small pike because they know. Because they're easy. Exactly. I mean, they're a small pike is going to sit on a, a weed bed. And a trout. He's going to do something dumb. This bigger fish is going to come up to this edge and watch this little pike come out and try and smoke two or three small minnows. She'll just slide right up to on that edge and just look up and wait for him to make a mistake and come out. And one less, one less little hammer handle on the planet. Bigger food source for her. She eats two of those a day. She doesn't have to eat anything else, right? She doesn't have to chase around after small minnows. So when 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 I see people, you know, and I see it all the time on Facebook, on Instagram, you know, it's like, oh, I went up, you know, caught this huge pike, threw it up on the bank, and it's like, well, one, that's illegal. You can't do that. It's it's a game fish, right? Um, don't let fish and game catch it because yeah, like maybe they don't want the pike in there, but they will write you a ticket wasting your fish um and number two you're doing the exact opposite of what you need to do <laughs> to help that fishery right right um that's that's a great point i always see guys you know, the, you know these big pike you know these trout i've caught pike my entire life i've caught some absolutely huge pike and if i you know and i, and I killed a fair amount of them in my younger years because i didn't know mm -hmm. the research um and flaying those fish out looking at stomach content started kicking me off like okay well here's this huge pike and she's got one small pike inside of her. She just ate. There's another one sticking out of her throat, mm -hmm. right? And she's got a big crayfish and a whitefish in there. Mm -hmm. And the next one will have a big old dead you know, sucker that it found on the bottom. Mm -hmm. The next one will have four or five big crayfish. So these larger fish didn't have the trout in them. But when I do a lot of the surveys, I know when, when in, in the 90s when they took the dam out, when they were doing that study, right? Um, they did a lot of stomach content studies, and I kind of would pay attention when they were doing them when I was putting them out fishing and talking to them. A lot of those smaller pikes, sure enough, trout, trout, whitefish, trout, you know, squawfish, they had a lot of those smaller fish, you know, that they were targeting. And they were serving a lot of very small fish because that's they were catching their gill nets, right? And so they put out a deal. I know, um, I know Brian Schmetterling put out a deal, you know, saying that, you know, this is what they're targeting. But he never really said in the study, this is what this size of pike is targeting for a food source. So everyone that would read that report would automatically go, okay, yeah, you know, they're eating trout. we got to get rid of them. But what he didn't say was that, you know, we don't have any large fish in the system at that point. And they didn't because a lot of those big fish had gotten schwacked out of there. You know, as soon as everybody found out there was pike in there, they went in there and killed a lot of those bigger fish. Right. So we saw a lot of them um, when they were in there spawning in certain places. That would, I mean, you see a big female that's getting ready to spawn. She'd come in pre spawn and she'd have four or five of these little small males with her, right? And all of a sudden you turn and look, and here comes that big female swimming by with a hammer handle, T bone. Yeah. So she had to stop and get a meal before she continued on with what she was doing. We saw that a lot all of a sudden. You know, we saw less big fish, saw more small fish, but saw those big fish turn them into a food source. Mm, interesting. And I always joked, um, I've talked to, to Brian a few times in the future, and I always joked, I was like, you know, I wish you guys could have done that study a little differently. And studied fish, you know, by size class or year class, as opposed to just generically stamping them as a, right. as a fish killer. Yeah, everything, right? exactly, right. Um, and I've noticed that over the years with the flies that I tie, I've tied a lot of uh, rainbow trout pattern streams, right? And I'll show them to people, and they're like, oh, that's the greatest thing ever. I've got a box full of them. I've probably only caught 10 fish on them. 
they don't work. Uh, I, I, I did the same thing. <laughs> yeah, put a big rainbow out there, they'll eat it. Yeah, no, they won't. They're not looking for it. Um, right. That was the thing that I ran into really fast. I was like, okay, they're not targeting trout per se. They were targeting whatever food source was super available to them. I started noticing the natural colored stuff like whitefish patterns. It looked like a whitefish, squawfish, peamal patterns, you know, more golds, more olives. That got more of them to go. Um, and then, believe it or not, crayfish colored stuff browns, uh, a little bit of orange, a little bit of red, um, the greens with blue in it, you know, blue sparkle and stuff like that. Those fish, I don't know if it's because they're just geared towards doing that. You know, they're used to seeing, okay, when I go and pick up this big crayfish on the bottom, he's dark black, but he's got orange somewhere. Mm-hmm. So they're seeing that. Um, the patterns that I have tied, and I tie a lot of them for people, and I sell a lot of them, and I kind of I, I tell every one of them when they buy the, you know, the trout stuff, like that's awesome. It looks like a trout. It's, yeah, <laughs> that may right. not catch fish, just so you know. So right, and I've had like I, I throw a yellow fly a lot that they call it the big bird, right? And I yeah, throw that pattern a ton. I tie that in about four different patterns, and that fly doesn't look like anything. It's in nature. It's a big yellow, I mean, neon bright yellow fly. And that thing will catch more pike and even big pike, which surprises me because I never thought they'd target that stuff. But they do that in black. Black is a huge color. And I, I, you know, I tell people that they won't buy them. Right. And I will catch a lot of big fish on black. I don't know what the deal is with that. Um, and then I kind of, you know, I said, then I'll segue back to, okay, whitefish patterns. That's been a big popular one for me is that whitefish. Um, I do know that a lot of guys were buying it for a while, not for pike. Right. They're buying it for bull trout. But. Oh, sure. Sure. So let's talk about bite me flies a little bit. So your company has been around for uh, as long as I've known you, which is almost 20 years. I so I, I think I started selling, I actually started selling flies in 92 or there you go, almost 30 years, okay. So, yeah, I've been doing it for a while, and I, I still got some of those flies, and I kind of save them in a box, and I look at them, and I'm like, oh, my God, what was I thinking? <laughs> they probably were. Oh, they probably still work. They probably <laughs> yeah. work really fine. I know my brother used to do that, because when, when I started really turning them out uh, production line-wise, and when I say that, you know, my production line's pretty small, my brother would come over to my house, and I'd have a box with all the ones where you know, the head was moving a little bit off, or the, one of the eyes had drooped when I put the epoxy on it. I'm throwing it like, people aren't going to buy that. It doesn't look like the other five that are right there. So he'd come over every every about, I don't know, mid-March and take that box and pick through it and get all the seconds and thirds, right? And he caught just as many bike as I did with stuff that was pristine and perfect. So Sure. Um, but yeah, no, I've been doing it for a long time. I mean, I just, I got into it. <laughs> Just because they started showing up in places, um, and I was a big trout fisherman, I was a fly guy, you know, fished every day that I could, fished Clark Fork, fished a bit of, you know, whatever spot I had, you know, at that point I was traveling all the way to, going over to the land of the Giants over in the Missouri, fishing all of that, um, and kind of just, you know, did the pike thing as kind of a joke one day. I had a buddy of mine, yeah, I bet you can't catch one on a fly rod. Had a big trout streamer, I can't remember, I think it was a big yellow mother minnow, if I remember right, that I bought, I believe it or not, Bob Ward's, right? Mm-hmm. Boom, picked up a fish. Boom, picked up another one, bit me off. So I learned real fast <laughs> that yes, they have teeth, and yes, you know, 10-pound test mono is not, not going to stop that from happening. So I kind of, 
you know, research some stuff, get, you know, started doing pre-made steel leaders, um, started making my own leaders at that point. At the time then it was, you know, just, you had seven strand mm-hmm. leaders. And now the, the world's your oyster. You got all kinds of different stuff, but, um, you could do fluorocarbon, which is what a lot of the guys do. Um, I've kind of, I've, I've experimented with it a whole bunch. I still lose fish to it. Me too. So I kind of, I fish wire you. Yeah. I started, I went to titanium. Titanium oh, wire. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's a couple of different companies that make. Um, you can tie a knot and you can tie a clinch knot in it, right? Um, so I can tie an Albright knot to a leader and then run. You know, and I and I thing I learned real fast was that you know a 12 inch leader will work great for all the small pike that you catch anything over about 35 inches. You're running the risk of having a fish that comes up and smokes that fly and that bill is longer than 12 inches. Mm-hmm. She's gonna freaking bite you off. Um, I had a fish do that to me, this would have been probably 10 years ago at uh, Knox and fishing down there in the spring with my brother. Had a fish come up that was solid 45 inch fish. I never felt the fish take. I was saying something to my brother and I turned while I was stripping the fly and I went to strip and there was nothing there. Mm-hmm. Strip in and I'm like, I come up and I got mono hanging off my fly line. Like, what the heck? Like, I didn't feel a fish take. And I'm like, God, did I nick it? You know, the fly or something? I can remember to go, look, 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 look. And he's pointing. I turn and look, and there's that fish swimming by, you know, a foot underneath the surface, and my fly is on her gill plate, just swinging around. So she had come up to inhale the fly, and when she did, it went right into her mouth and right out her gill plate. Crazy, yeah. And when she closed and turned, she cut the leader off like a pair of nippers does. Right. Dink. So I didn't feel the fish, didn't even realize she'd eaten it. Hmm. And Saving Grace, you want another fish story, Saving Grace was that fish saw us in the boat, swooped. And when she spooked, that fly poked, popped out, and it sunk to the bottom, and I got it with the net. You got the fly back. So I got the fly in the <laughs> no air. way. And I remember I was looking at my brother in the boat, and I held up the leader, and I'm like, eh, 12 <laughs> inches is not enough. Yeah, you know? so that fly had been uh, so, in, through, uh, in through the pike's mouth, out the gill plate, and, uh-huh. and back yeah, into I, your fly and box. And I got it back in the fly box, and that fly wow. caught another, I don't know, probably another 150 fish. And it didn't end up getting that, that, that individual fly with a longer leader this time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I end up getting a 42 inch fish down there about two weeks later. So, oh wow, almost cool. on the same spot, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't that fish. So, in so, in your flies, on to your point there, um, they're they're known for their durability. So, yeah. kind of tell me, like, what what? How do you build a pike fly? What are the most important things, especially given how pike tend to eat a fly? Well, the biggest the biggest three things I see guys do: they either put too big a head on them, right? So they're trying to cover stuff up, and I and I that's why I put epoxy heads on mine. Um, to cover up a lot of the thread wraps that are underneath there, just because teeth, they're gonna they're gonna tear a fly apart. If you do like a wrapped head and just do head cement on it and stuff, it'll it'll hold up for a few fish. Um, and and I say this nicely, actually, those flies will actually hold up on large fish incredibly well. It's the medium and small fish that are just destroyers of everything. I mean, like, you'll hear me say that a lot of times, like you know, it's like if you're fishing for big pike, you go up to Canada and you fish big pike, you could literally probably do about three just uh, half hitches and put a drop of glue on that fly 
probably get away with fishing that fly a weekend. Right. If you go somewhere up there and you're catching small hammer handle pike, about 10 of them, and that fly is a hook shank with nothing on it. So I go in and I purposely weigh them, you know, put different, you know, lead wraps on them. And I, and I do have different weights that I'll do. I'll do bite medium and heavies. Um, and then I'm, you know, putting as much of the wrapping up underneath that head as I possibly can so that when I epoxy it, it does give it that protection. Um, and it's great protection until you bounce it off the side of your boat or hit a rock when you're casting or your buddy. Um, they'll, they'll break when you do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're careful, those flies will last a long time. But that was the biggest thing that I found from a durability standpoint was that anything you can do to hide that thread from teeth, especially for medium and small fish, the more that fly will last. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, the other direction that I have gone is I, I, I didn't go super into synthetics in the beginning, right? I did as much natural stuff as I could. And I say that nicely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bucktail fiend when it comes to that where I'm Sure. You know, I think I think I've run into Justin here about half the time in the spring where I'm literally going from fly shop to fly shop trying to find right. mocktails. Yeah. Um because you know it's it's gotten to a point where you can't find a good one anymore. Yeah, yeah. it's hard to find the big long ones. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. unless you really want to spend about 10, 12 bucks a tail, you can do that if you go online. But you know, it's it's one of those things where finding decent tails is difficult, you know. But I, I try to stay with as much natural stuff as I could. I just found that when I did kind of dabble in a lot of the super synthetics for, for especially like up near the heads, um, I just didn't catch as many fish with them. Mm. I don't know if it's, they make a certain sound in the water when they strip or if they just give that profile on it. And I, and I'm more, so I'm more locked on the profile than the sound. Um, and I'll segue into that sound thing in a little bit because sound is a big thing for those fish. They, you know, you got to figure a fish that's three feet long is using a lateral line that is designed to pick up vibration and water movement. Mm-hmm. And some flies that are out there um, that are tied like all synthetic, they don't make a lot of noise when you're stripping them through the water. You won't hear that swishing sound or the water coming through. So I stayed in natural stuff to get that sound, and I would trigger more fish with it. Mm-hmm. You know? And then the other thing, too, and I'm sure like the natural materials would hold scent a little bit differently, right? They don't get as, you don't have as much of your scent getting on that fly when you're fishing it. There's another one of scent that's you fish that follow and I've had flies that fish will follow, follow, follow and never eat and then wonder why and then take that fly. I mean, I've done it. I've literally done it where I've added scent to it, mm-hmm. right? you know, purposely either do, you know, smelly jelly or whatever scents available. goes from not catching fish to catching fish in one spray. Right. right. And that could be why sometimes like when you're catching those smaller fish on the same bug, it just becomes like just, you know, one after another no, no, no. after another because that fly smells like bike now. It smells like fish. Mm-hmm. Who was it? It was Dave Whitlock that said that. Yeah, he had a he had an article in one of his books about that years ago. And he used to take like if it was a if it was a woolly bugger, if it was a mother minnow, and he did a lot with mother minnows. I think that's what he was describing in his book. He'll tie that fly on. He'll walk to the bank and he'll grab a handful of mud off the bottom or sediment, put the fly in his hand and. Just completely, you know, goose it up with whatever mud, sand, silt was there. Then he would fish the fly, and he always said he was don't try and touch it very much once you've done that. And his description was, and it was a beautiful description. He said, you know, you get a big brown trout that's fishing, that's living in a hole, and it comes up and it grabs something that it thinks is a minnow, and it bites down. And of course, that deer here crushes and crunches when that fish closes down. So it sounds, it feels just like what a minnow would feel like. You know, he's crushing down on it, crushing its skull. Or 
breaking his back. And then all that sediment comes out, the sand and stuff that's in, that's trapped in the deer here that you just put on it. Fish tastes that, you know, tastes the least amount of, yeah, of a triggering sense. thing for a fish. But, you know, say you and I are standing there BSing on the bank and we're, we're stripping that streamer, that fish is going to probably hold on to that streamer, you know, 15 seconds, 10 or 15 seconds before, whereas if it didn't have scent and that stuff and it would come up crushed down, it would get that one thing, but then feel no other sensations. It wouldn't feel that sand popping out into its gills, right? Wouldn't taste the salt that was on it from doing that. So that fish would spit it out immediately. So if you're slightly distracted, you get a strike. You know, the longer that fish holds onto the fly, better chance you're going to get the fly stuck. So I've seen that with, with, with a lot of the flies that I did. That's why I stuck to the natural material because it would do those things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then hooks, outsourcing hooks used to be difficult in Montana because nobody really fished for, you know, anything bigger than a size, what, two. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm putting, you know, one odd, two odd, three odd. I've even got flies up to six odd and seven odd now mm-hmm. for hooking gaps. Um, and that was more gaps because of the material that I was putting on just to get that ability to hook fish. And I do something a little bit different than a lot of guys do. I purposely keel bend mine and I tie them with kind of the hook point up as opposed to the hook point down. Mm, okay. And the reason why I did that was obviously you lose enough flies on wood and rocks in these rivers with that hook down, you know, because if you get it near the bottom and you strip it into a rock, it's going to stick right in. So I reverse that hook shank to get that hook point up so that I could fish it closer to the bottom and closer to weeds and structure and not have as many of them get wedged into something and lose the fly. The other thing I found was that hitting a pike in that upper lip gave me a lot better hooking percentage than it did in that lower jaw. Okay. Because when you think about it, when you look at a you know, pike's face, the top of that deal is pretty, pretty you know, flat where you can hit something. When you look at the bottom of their jaw, they got that tongue in the middle and they got two big grooves and it's just all bone mm-hmm. you know, on that outer jaw mandible, right? It's harder to stick a hook in that jaw mandible than it is in that soft palate up above. Yeah, that makes sense. So it got me you know, a higher hook percentage. So I was like, okay, you know, obviously if I'm, if it's you and me and we're playing the game and you're catching two and I'm catching six, obviously I'm catching six with that, you know, hook and fish in the top of the mouth. Um, the other advantage to that is a lot of times it's a lot easier to get a fly out. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, when you stick that bottom jaw and you put it in that bone, yeah. um, it's hard to get a fly out. Of it is. Bone. Yeah. So, you, yeah. Yeah. And you can really damage a fish that you mm-hmm. intend to release that way, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, I, I know we've talked about this and you you sometimes will throw a nine weight, um, but if you were going to line somebody out, if somebody came to you and said, hey, Neil, I want to get into pike, pike fishing, what, uh, what setup do you yes. recommend as far as rod and line and leader setup? Like what do you, what's just the basics to go out and give them a shot somewhere? I usually tell people that if, 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 you're, an, if you're an experienced fly fisherman, but you haven't fished for large fish like on the salt water, like some of us do. Right. Um, I would say an eight weight rod would get you, you know, every pike 35 and under easily catching a fish over that in the 40 inch range would be a little bit Western because mm-hmm. you are, you are a little bit under gun. You can't stop that fish with that, with that eight weight rod. Um, I throw a nine, I even throw tens. Um, I know guys that throw 11 weight rods. Um, the reason why I've thrown a 10 is for, is twofold because number one, I'm targeting large fish a lot of the time where I'm not targeting numbers. Um, number two is I can cast into the wind, take that bigger rod with that heavier line and a huge fly 
and I can punch into a you know 15, 20 monitor wind and still make 30, 40 foot casts with it. Um, and then secondarily, if I do hook large fish, I can keep them from going in the weeds. I can control exactly, them. Exactly, right. Um, I can make that fish do something that it may not want to do initially. Um, and a lot of times, too, with that heavier rod, I can make that fight a lot less of, of a period of time. I can, I can control the fish, get her up, have her make a mistake at the boat. Because pike have that bad habit. They'll do one or two good runs, right? Those bigger fish especially, they'll kind of tank for a second. And a lot of guys, you know, that's when you lose those fish. You get them up to the boat, here comes this pike, and she's, you know, she'll turn on her side, and she's flapping a, a fin at you. She's kind of in that first kind Wave, of, she's Waving the fin. I always, I always joke, she's kind of, yeah, you think, okay, yeah, she's giving up. It's like, no, she's literally in shock trying to figure out what just happened. And now you've solidified it by dabbing a net at her. Right. And then and then it's on, fight's on, right? She's going to take off. It's like the tarpon thing. You used to describe that tarpon. Hook a tarpon. If you can get it in fast before it hits its second wind, right? There's kind of a window where that fish will make four or five really big runs, and then she'll kind of gas. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same thing. I, I always, I always treat it to being shocked, like what just happened? What is going on? They're kind of sitting there, kind of stunned a little bit, like wow, I'm attached to something that I wasn't attached to before. How am I attached? This is weird. But they don't have that thought process that they can't get away until they realize they can't get away, right? And I always joke, it's like, then they panic. And those big pike especially, I mean, I've, I've had several of them in the boat where I get them all unhooked. You know, I get them in fast, so that I've, got, I've got them inside that window before they get their second win. Get them in, go to take a picture of them, and they go just bat crazy. Right. And I've not gotten pictures of a lot of those fish because I am like, get it out of the boat. Yeah, exactly. Let's not poke its eye out. Let's not let it bash its head against the bottom of the boat. Let's not let it bite us. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, it's got bigger teeth than those little guys. You know, and not to mention the fact, I mean, if you've ever had a big pike hit you in the head with its head when it starts trying to do head shakes, uh, you have not lived because you will be seeing stars. Right, right. Um, the other thing I've seen those big fish do when they do that, I use a mouse spreader, and I've actually got a couple of them that I've modified where the curves come up and they're pointed, and I'm always afraid those will poke through fish, right, and their jaws and stuff when I'm trying to get flies out. So I took them and put wine corks on them. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. Put a hole and slid it in there, and I you know cut the wine cork off, so I put it in there. Twofold, that wine cork will stick in those teeth. Right. And not come flying out. If you don't do that with a mouse spreader, you get a larger fish and you hold it by a gill plate and try and do that, and they decide to shake, they can shoot a mouse spreader a, oh, a yeah. long ways. And the other thing you got to have in your head is that you're downrange. I had one do it to me in Canada. This would have been 20 years ago. It hit me right between the eyes. <laughs> and I sat there, the fish kind of, fish got away. Um, I luckily had the fly out at that point, but when she decided to shake that thing, hit me. I, mean, I probably got a concussion out of that deal. Like, it dead center of course here's this you know metal piece of right yeah piece of metal right lesson learned um, yeah but for most people for most people like i said an eight would get them by if you're gonna purposely target large fish i would tell you to definitely you know don't go undergunned definitely get you know get something that's a little bit easier for you and now half the rods they make you know the difference between an eight weight and a ten weight you know overall weight of fly overall weight of rod casting it is what an ounce yeah yeah, the, the, so right, the nines and tens are pretty light in the hand these days, and the, yeah, and they throw just as good as an eight. I mean, I, that was the thing a long time ago. I remember going to fly shows and stuff. You know, guys like you know, if you want to cast for distance, you're throwing a six weight rod, you know, seven weight rod. And if you want to be dainty, you're going down to a five and a 
There's guys out there that can throw a five weight just as far as they can throw a seven weight. Right. Yeah. You know, pretty easily. Right. Now the rods are so much faster. The actions are so much different. Um, if you're going to spend the money, I mean, an eight weight and a 10 weight, there's no real difference usually in cost per se, if you're, if you're buying, you know, depending on what, what range of rod you're buying. Um, reels, you, you're really putting pike into backing. I mean, there will be some, and you know, depending on where you catch them, that, that will do that. But I mean, I probably have had in the last five years, I've probably had about three fish that I've actually, you know, had to put, you know, that I, that I had in the backing. There's probably only about 20 fish that I actually had to put on a reel. Right. You know, nine times out of ten, I can just strip them in, right? Um, larger fish, I will try and get on a reel just because they're so herky-jerky and they have the ability to just do things that other fish don't do. Um, they change direction super quick. Um, so having them on a reel helps, uh, but I don't think that's the prerequisite. You don't have to have a five hundred dollar reel to do it. Yeah, it's pretty easy. And and floating line gets you by for the floating majority. line will get you by for if, if you're if you're a fair weather fisherman, you're going to fish the you know high percentage window. You want to fish May June. Floating line will do everything you need to do, right? Um, if you are super serious, then you're looking at other lines. You can do same tip lines. I do um, intermediate sink lines. Do you like those striper lines or which line? I've gone, yeah, I've actually gone to, I've, I started fishing some striper stuff the last couple of years. And yeah, I like really. Good. I like those lines too. My buddy um, and I started using those kind of just by happenstance a few years ago. Yeah, they're designed, they are, I actually, the, the, the other line that I really liked that I got a few years ago or was an essay line, they built it for redfish. Oh, I, yeah, guys. yeah, that's um, a good line, yeah. That was for cold water redfish. Right, um, yeah. That was great. Um, that was, that's, uh, that's the other thing when you do the intermediate lines, you got to kind of watch that because some of them are set up for cold, cold. Right. You know, or tropical. Steelhead salmon, or they're tropical. Right. You get the tropical one, you go out in March, and the thing's going to be pig-coiled, you know, pigtail in the bottom of the boat. You can right. never get straightened out. That's why that so, striper line and that redfish line are just about, you're, you're really kind of in yeah. the same, yeah, water temp zone as, as you yeah. are for pike for the most part. And they're, and they're presenting flies um, the same way that we would for pike. I mean, a lot, you know. Yep. They're fishing medium to skinny water. They're throwing, you know, big streamers. They're yep. fishing mid water. You know, and I mean, the great thing about that too is, is you got to think about it. When you fish a floating line, you got a leader, right? You got a fly that sinks, or you got to fly on top. If your fly sinks, right? When you strip it, your fly lands on the surface, and your fly is down below on the end of that leader. The leader doesn't float nine times out of ten. It sinks, right? Mm -hmm. So when you strip this fly, it's a lot more up and down motion. So mm -hmm. when you strip it, just the drag of that, that fly line on the surface will bring that fly up. So when you strip the fly, it's now coming up and sinking down. So it's a lot of that, you know, what I always call the chopping action, right? Where the fly's going up and down and up and down. And for small, medium pike, they love that. That's their favorite thing. And that thing's trying to get out of the weeds and get away from them. Let's eat it. Bigger pike follow stuff more. And, I, and I, I'm sure you've seen it, you know, when you're, when you're stripping flies. Big pike will take stuff differently than little pike. They will, they're more tacticianists in the, in the aspects of that they'll follow. And then wait for a window where they get the best window where they know they can engulf whatever it is they're chasing. Right? Little pike is just throw them; they'll just throw their body at it. <laughs> they don't care, right? Let's open your mouth and take a shot at it. You know, mm -hmm. If we miss it, we miss it. No biggie. Right? Big pike will line up and go, "Okay, what's the hundred percent? You know, I'm going to get in the six o'clock low, just like a fire pilot does." Mm -hmm. And this thing doesn't know I'm there, and I'm going to close to the closest distance I possibly can. And that thing is at six o'clock, slightly high over the bill. All that fish really has to do is jut its bottom jaw, open its top jaw, and pull water through its gills, and whatever it's following goes in. Mm -hmm. And it's unsuspecting; it has no clue that it's going to get. Oh, it's gone. Mm -hmm. 
So those bigger pike, when you're stripping that, and you have a lot of that you know, chopping action, herky-jerky action, that bite's going up, going up. Those bigger fish will follow up, and then they just will just stop. Once it goes to a certain depth, like, okay, that's too shallow. I'm not going to the birds you're going to get me. Whereas those mm. slow-mo lines present more horizontally. You mm. have more left and right action in the fly a lot. Interesting. Um, and I've noticed that with, with a lot of my patterns is that when I fish on a floating line, I get that, you know, that hop action. Um, with a floating line and then with the intermediate sinking lines i get a lot more left and right mm, that's interesting that you say that okay and i think sometimes like i said when those fish when they're in more of a when they're in a more neutral mood they'll follow when they're in more off you know on mood they're going to hit it no matter what it is get some strikes when they're going to hit it but if they're a little neutral having that fly going back and forth and allowing that fish to kind of line up and get into that position that six o'clock position to take a bait will get more strikes Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of learned that from uh, there's a guy Popovic that used to do a lot of saltwater patterns. Oh yeah, Greg Popovic. Greg Popovic, mm-hmm. and he, matter of fact, I, you know, I copied some of his stuff when he was doing steelhead or when he was doing uh, striper flies because he like does a lot s- of surf candy or something. He that does epoxy, surf candy right? and stuff, and I was like, God, of course, he that was the first thing he said was these are so much more durable. And of course, they were dealing with where they had you know, they were dealing with you know rockfish, striped bass, but they also had a lot of bluefish. Where they were right, with that, toothy critters. Teeth. Yeah, yeah. back right. to teeth again. Right. Yeah. So the epoxy and teeth are a good combination. You know, you're not wrecking flies, and you can get a good, you know, good pattern. When you tie that fly, you can weigh it right. You can shape those heads, mm-hmm. right? And for a lot of years, that's that was something that took me forever. Was trying to get the right, you know, find the right shape ahead. Um, and I found like that teardrop, but with a slightly bigger back end, almost like a bell, seemed to just give a better action. Like when we were talking about with that intermediate line. When I'd strip that fly, if I had just a really pointed fly, I got a lot less side-to-side movement. Gotcha. The more belled out I did to the back, the more rounded kind of a bullet-shaped head that I got by rounding the back, I got a lot more left and right action out of that fly. Um, And that, you know, that triggered more fish. So we're back to that. More bigger fish. Yeah, more bigger fish. Yeah. So transmitting that to anybody that's out there fishing, it's like there's, there's... you can you can do this and you can do it easy and you can catch numbers. Mm-hmm. If you're a big fish guy like me, because I've kind of graduated from numbers, don't get me wrong, I love catching pike lots sure, of them, right? But, but when I know I can go to a spot and go, okay, this is, you know, you, it got to me for a while to be it's a nine hole golf course. I'm gonna go to this weed bed and catch those twelve. Go to that weed bed and catch those six, and oh, there's a seventh one there, you're going Right. <laughs> um and, and go that and run numbers, it was great. And then like, how many pike do you catch? I don't know, fifty. Yeah. Right. And right. I, know, I know I had days years ago, like salmon lakes. It, it's frustrating to me now because, you know, it's been fished a lot now and the numbers are way down. But that lake, you go there in the afternoon and catch, I don't know. I mean, those days where you're catching 100 pike a day. Yeah. You know, and let them go. A lot um, more ice fishermen up there, too. That's the there. one limiting factor to pike is people, right? Um, people go in, they don't know what they're doing to a fishery. And, and I know that I, you know, I talked to a lot of trout unlimited guys and they all bitch about, you know, pressure. Pressure is huge. You know, and we're seeing more and more and more pressure on all of our fisheries. Um, the only thing that, that I think trout have an advantage on is the fact that they will, they will basically, they will fill every niche in the system. And pike kind of have started to do that, but they don't, I don't think they've adapted in the same way in the aspect of that they will, they'll be in water that, you know, that other fish can't tolerate. Trout, trout will, you know, trout are, they can go in a lot of different places if the water temps right, they can be anywhere. And pike are pretty, like I said, there's big windows of opportunity to catch them where they are just gullible as sick. Mm-hmm. And you don't see trout do that. Right. 
you know, one, because there's not enough of this one fish doing this one thing that makes them targetable. Um, and there are movements, I mean, you know, in the years that I fish trout and I still fish trout, there's pre-spawn deals for trout and you can catch the living snot out of rainbow trout at certain, certain drainages around here. If you know what that timing is, if you know, if you know, they're pre-spawn because they'll move in the locations and just go on the feed. Yeah. Whatever goes by them, they're going to pick it up. Right. Um, and you see that when the rainbow trout spawn, the brown trout do that, where they come up and they're you know, picking up eggs and they're picking up whoever else is coming up to eat eggs, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's always a there's always a pre-spawn post-spawn deal that, that makes fish vulnerable. But the pikes, for some reason, even the giant ones, I mean, they can be incredibly smart. They come out of winter, and it was like someone flipped a switch, where they don't look at stuff anymore. They don't give a crap that it's got a big you know stainless steel leader sticking out of it. If it's dead and on the bottom, they pick it up. Mm-hmm. And if it's a big streamer and it goes in front of them, they haven't seen one in six months. It goes in their mouth. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, they're just super gullible. So it's easy for one or two individuals that know what they're doing to just go into a spot and just schwack everything in. Take out the big age yeah. class and the spawners. And, and yeah, yeah, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, none of us, none of us, you know, going to take pictures of little fish. We try not to, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're a fisherman and you've been doing it for a little bit, you want a picture of a bigger fish. You want a 20 inch rainbow. You want a 24 inch brown trout. You know, that's the epitome of this sport, right? And the bad thing with pike is, is that those bigger fish, once they're gone, I mean, it takes, I mean, each class of fish here is, you know, our growing season for them is huge. It takes a fish to attain 40 inches. It probably takes 10, 12 years minimum. Yeah. In most of our fisheries. And some of our fisheries, it's 15 or 20 years to get to that size. So you figure, even though there's a ton of pike in the system, and you say, you and I go out and we catch this 30 incher, that's probably a four-year-old fish. Mm-hmm. We go, oh God, you know, there's pike in here, they're going to eat everything. It's like, it's going to take another 15 years for that fish to get to that 40, 45 inch size. So when you kill that fish, and you got to remember those big fish are like, they're like the one percenters, right? They're the ones that right. make it through all the, I mean, if, you, if you've been anywhere near a pike fishing, how many ospreys do you see out here picking off pike? Mm-hmm. I mean, it used to be when I grew up here, it was ospreys and eagles, you know, targeting kokanees. Most of the fisheries I go to now, they're targeting pike. They're eating small pike. That's they're what they, that's they target. Right? Easy to get. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it takes so much longer to get that fish to that size. And even with big, big trout, it's the same thing here. You know, for trout, I mean, trout grow to certain sizes. Um, it takes probably half that time to attain the, the adult size fish. Um, the other thing with that, too, that I see a lot is that the recruitment numbers, right? If you had a fishery that had no large fish in it, doesn't matter if it's trout, doesn't matter if it's bass, doesn't matter if it's pike. If you take those large fish out that are predating on the population that they're creating, you create a fishery that's upside down. In other words, you have lots of young fish, no adult fish, no adult fish eating young fish, right? So you see when they say, I always you know see it when they talk about trout numbers per mile. You know, there's four thousand trout per mile, right? Uh, I remember in years past when Pike first got in the Clark Fork, and of course they were all saying, oh, you know, there's so many trout. At that time, there was, I think, it was, uh, Clark Fork here through Missoula was anywhere from about you know, 850 to maybe 1,000 fish per mile. And I remember them saying, you know, we get Pike in the system, that'll go, you know, drop 50%. Right? Um, and I kind of kept track of that through, that through that time period. And I noticed that now that fishery, that same fishery, has four times the amount. 
some of that, those numbers, right? I can't remember the card groupings now, but it's considerably larger than that for numbers of fish. So if these things were killing all of those, why do we have more? It's a good question. You know, that's that's a question I always ask. Well, they're killing everything. Well, okay, well, look at the numbers from 20 years ago. Look at the numbers from now. And tell me if there's more trout in that system now. We're not releasing anymore. We stopped planting most of our rivers 40 years ago with trout. So it's not like they're getting supplemented. Those fish are surviving. They're doing just fine. And this fish is in the system. And with the rivers, the great thing about it is, is that those pike will only inhabit certain locations. And there's always one more location that nobody hits. So there's mm-hmm. always, you know, they've, they've been in all the, all the creel studies that I saw. That if, if you ever want a really fun read, yeah, you can go online and go on to uh, Fish Life and Parks webpage. And they have a data section. They just call it data now. And you can go in there, you pick your body of water, and you can basically see all the reports from all the fisheries biologists from when they were started keeping records on paper to now. And you can go back, like on the Clark Fork, because someone asked me this years ago, like, you know, how long a pike in the system? Oh, not that long. So I started, I'm like, oh, I'm going to, you know, one night I was bored, didn't want to tie any more flies. And I go, like, well, I'm going to go in here and look and see how long, you know, how, how far back were fisheries biologists, you know, recording these fish. And there's one guy, and I can't remember his name, but I mean, it was like before, it was like right before they built the dam in Oxley. And they do a fish survey. They were doing one in the spring and one in the fall. And he was 54 he does the thing you know pike present mm-hmm. right and then i started looking like okay i'm gonna look at this every you know every two years they do the study all the way up to to now and you know, 54 is a long time ago right so people that say oh the pike are in there now they're going to take over that fishery well if they haven't done it since 1954 to now 2022 1954 they probably aren't going to do it i mean there, unless there unless go. we create something you know in the system if we put too much fertilizer in the water or the water temp comes up and there's a huge one you know right everybody's like you know water temp and all these rivers is coming up and trout populations are starting to you know, have issues right mm-hmm. um circling back to that to the stunting thing small fish can take warmer water than large fish be it trout be it uh, northern pike and squawfish the suckers that are in that river white fish that are in those systems when we when we see that water temp come up, populations of fish increase, but size goes down. And then once the size goes down to a certain point, and there's so many small fish, you stack the deck to get a big fish, right? So those one percenters are now 0.5 percenters that get to those sizes, right? So be it a big trout, be it a big you know bull trout, whatever. That's what probably killed more bull trout off in the systems is the fact that we went through and targeted a lot of those large fish. Mm-hmm. We lost that adult population, the one percenters, right? So now, same thing with them. It takes them probably 10, 15, 20 years to attain those sizes. That's how long it's going to take when we take one out to replace it with one, right? And then we stack the deck against them by putting so many more fish in the system and utilizing all the food sources that are in that system. Those fish don't have the ability to grow because they're not getting the nutrient base Mm -hmm. to get to those large sizes. And pike are just one of those things where they've been in the system a little less time, but they are, like I said, because the way that they feed and the way they do things, it's more noticeable in their populations at a, at a rapid pace, right? Every fishery we have in western Montana, with the exception of maybe one or two, are all, you know, fish that we got there by you know, bucket biology or they got in the system somewhere else and, and they moved. The reason why pike move in most of these systems is because they're, they're 
place where they're born hits a carrying capacity and there's not enough food. Mm-hmm. And so the fish leaves. It goes, I mean, it's just like you and me. It's like, okay, we don't like being around, you know, lots of people. In Missoula, so we're going to go somewhere else to get away from people. Right? Sure. But there's better resources. So they move. And the funny thing is, like, when they got in that, I remember when they got in the Clark purposes, they were like, oh, they're going to go all the way up to Warm Springs and they're going to go all the way down to the Columbia, right? Those fish have definitely gone downriver, but not a lot of them have gone upriver. Right. And the reason being is because it's harder for those fish to find better niches further up the system than down the system. Mm-hmm. And I think with trout, there's some of that too, where there's not great, you know, not great habitat for those fish to spread out. But when you see trout numbers, you know, everybody seems to think that, you know, the health of a river is numbers of fish. Right. Yeah. Good point. And it's not. And that's something that I think has been fostered by a lot, in a lot of places, by a lot of people that probably haven't done the, you know, done more research on it to go, hey, you know, it's like, you know, this, this fishery could carry, you know, 10,000 fish. However, if we do put 10,000 fish or we get 10,000 fish in this fishery, what are those fish going to look like? If we put that many in there, they're all little because there's not enough food to get them to the next size. Mm-hmm. I see it in a lot of lakes with kokanees. Kokanees are a huge one for that. Kokanees, the first couple of years of their life, and for most of their life, when they swim and they're breathing, they're filtering out plankton out of the system. That's a nutrient food for them. As they get to be larger adults, then they start targeting insects, other fish, stuff like that as a food source, right? Well, when you put more and more and more of a fish that filters plankton into a system, there's less plankton, so those fish don't attain sizes. They don't grow. Well, Neil, I've taken up enough of your time, man. Um, so bite me flies. It's a uh, bite me flies. Yeah, bite me flies.com. Yeah, bite me flies.com. You can reach me there. Um, in the process of redoing a website, uh, doing some other stuff, and yeah, hopefully I get that up and running. Um, when I do do that, I will probably have. I'm going to start doing some classes and stuff on there too. So if you guys have questions, definitely fire them at me set up some stuff and get more people in the fish. So. Great, great. And what's the best way for folks to reach you to? Uh, just email? email me Email me at bitemeflies.com. Awesome, man. Well, thank you. This has been uh, um, just an awesome conversation, and uh, you're such a wealth of knowledge uh, on all fisheries and, um, you know, uh, pike, pike as well. So just uh, really good chatting with you. Yeah, and I learned a lot here. So yeah. insider stuff, man. Thanks again, Neil. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.